You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, boy, this is a great Sunday to come. I hope every Sunday is a great Sunday to come. But we're starting a new series today on the book of Ephesians uh, with sort of the sub-theme, How Grace Changes Everything. How Grace Changes Everything. And that's going to be the title of today's message as well. Well, this afternoon, or tonight, or tomorrow night or Thursday night, many of us will be sitting on a sofa somewhere and watching football. For, th- for those who love the NFL, this is a great time of the year. Everything has just begun. And in Dallas, from now until December, it is the annual season of hope or perhaps better, the annual season of false hopes. Uh, And I'm a Cowboys fan, but we are a myopic group of people, uh, a group of uh, really a fan base of amnesiacs who say that this year it will be different. This is the year it's all coming together. And at the risk of sounding cynical, I I just want to remind you that every year, Uh, Come January, we will be sitting on our same sofas and watching other teams in the playoffs, consoling ourselves with ideas like, if it hadn't been for a couple of injuries uh, or eight losses, we too could go deep into the playoffs. Well, if you're a football fan, regardless of what team you watch today, you will be guided on the television by two primary broadcasters, and I want to talk about them just a minute. Uh, First of all, you will hear a play-by-play announcer. This is someone with a usually a deep, resonant voice, typically from the Midwest because they have no accent, Uh, and they, uh, he he will, usually a he, uh, maybe exclusively a he in the NFL right now, will be giving you play-by-play what is happening on the field. So his job is not to talk too much and not to talk too little, but to describe for you in live action what is happening on the field. Next to him in the booth will be a color commentator, not a play-by-play commentator, but a color commentator. And the color commentator is usually a former player, sometimes a, a former coach who is there to not tell you what is happening play-by-play, but to provide analysis. So the color commentator is explaining to us the strategy. Because of his own experience in the game, he knows more than us, uh, and he is explaining to us the strategy. Why did the team call that play at this time? Why did the coach choose to go for it rather than to punt on fourth down in this situation with this much time on the clock? The play-by-play person is explaining to us what each team needs to do to win the game. 
So the play-by-play announcer focuses on the what is happening. The color commentator focuses on the how and the why of what is happening. If you're not a football fan, this illustration may explain color commentary. Have you ever watched a director's cut of a film? In the director's cut, it's not the actual action of the film that you're watching, the play-by-play. It's the analysis of what happened when we shot this scene. What were we going for? What were we trying to accomplish? How did it come about? So back to the distinction between play-by-play and color commentary. I think it's the same distinction that we play, that we see in the announcing of Jesus' work. In the Gospels, we get play-by-play. At the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we get a factual play-by-play of what happened. Jesus was arrested. Jesus was charged. Jesus was brutalized and tortured. Jesus was crucified on a cross. Jesus said things uh, that have been recorded while he was crucified. Jesus was buried in a tomb provided for him. And then on the third day, he arose, appearing to a group of women and later to his disciples. And if we read on into Acts, we find out that Jesus then ascended up into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the play-by-play of what happened. There's some explanation, but it's primarily action-oriented historical narrative. But in the Gospels, I'm sorry, in the epistles, the letters, and in Ephesians, we get color commentary. In Ephesians, Paul peels back the curtain of the gospel event, the grand event, the climax of the Bible story in Christ. The, the, he peels back the curtain and provides perfect color commentary explaining the strategy of why God sent his son to the cross and what was accomplished, how, why he did this and, and what happened because he did this. He pulls back the curtain and said, this was God's purpose before the beginning of time. In the Gospels, you're reading it and just saying, oh, this is what happened. But in Ephesians, you find out, oh, God had this planned when he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In Ephesians, we find out what God is accomplishing through the gospel, that that he is raising people from death to life, dead in their transgresses and sins, but made alive together in Christ, and that he has formed us into one people, previously people that were hostile towards one another, Jew and Gentile, now the new humanity, one man in Christ. That's what God was seeking to accomplish by sacrificing his own son and raising him to new life. In Ephesians, we find out that, uh, that we are called to live a new lifestyle, that the grace of God impacts us in such a way, giving us a new identity, people in Christ who now live a new life together in the world as a testimony to Jesus Christ. In, in, in verses 9 and 10, if you can open up your journal there, chapter 1, he gives us this grand purpose of why Jesus goes to the cross. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. 
he shows us that what God was accomplishing in the work of Christ is he is renewing all things under the headship of Jesus Christ. And as the church in this fallen world, we are, we find out in this letter, we are God's, well, we could say pilot program. It's not temporary or he's not evaluating it, but we are the initial program showing what it will be like for all eternity in a renewed heaven and earth when those two meet and Jesus rules over all. See, the book of Ephesians, God provides color commentary that stretches our understanding of his purpose through the gospel. Yes, we will read that Jesus loves me. Jesus has forgiven me personally. But what we'll find is that our personal salvation is one piece in a vast conspiracy of grace where God is bringing all things together in Christ. It's color commentary that is lofty and grandiose and more amazing than any of us imagine or can grasp. Today, we're going to begin a journey into what we pray will be a more profound experience of God's grace as we study and apply this letter to the Ephesians where we see that God's grace does indeed change everything, both now and throughout all eternity. Today, we're just going to look at the first two verses. This is going to kind of give us our bearings. Um, It's going to give us a few themes that emerge so that we can sort of take a peek at what's to come. So in some ways, this will be a, a trailer, a coming attractions of what we'll study as we go through the book. So I'm going to read verses 1 through uh, 2. And uh, in this, we're going to see God's, a little bit about God's purpose in this letter, and then we're going to kind of close by looking at what do we hope that God does in us as a people as we take several months to walk through this together. So listen to this, God's holy word, reading from your Bible, your device, or your journal, however you're accessing it, reading the screen. Let's read God's holy word to us together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's start by looking at three things in these two verses by way of introduction. Uh, because this really sets the tone for the book. We're going to look at the author, uh, we're going to look at the recipients, and then we're going to look at the greeting he gives, and then I'm going to lay out some hopes of what God would accomplish in us as we study and apply this book. Number one, the author, we read in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The author is Paul. Uh, He he says that himself, that he has written it, uh, and that he is an apostle sent by Jesus. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we find out uh, that an apostle is a sent one. 
Uh, but in this case, it's an apostle with a capital A. He's one of the original sent ones that are, as the book of Ephesians will say, laying a foundation for the church, but built on the, the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. So he is a sent one, sent by Jesus with an unusual calling. He is called to bring the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to Gentiles. And he is to help start churches and then help those churches sort of get going in a pagan world among the Gentiles. Now, later in Ephesians, we're going to learn that Paul is writing this letter from prison. So he is actually in chains. Uh, there's some debate about which, uh, which prison he's in. He was in several places. Probably he's in Rome, uh, in, in the Roman prison at this point, writing the letter. And what's so interesting is that though he's not free to travel, he is continuing to fulfill his calling. This is important. He is an apostle of Christ. Now, he could say, well, I was an apostle of Christ, but now I'm in jail, so my ministry is done. But no, he says, I am an apostle of Christ by the will of God. It is the purpose of God for Paul that causes him to continue to write this letter. And this is a big theme in the book, by the will of God. Next week, the very next verses are going to teach us that we are believers because of the will of God. We were elect in him, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian, it's because of the will of God. And Paul is a Christian and an apostle because of the will of God. There is an accent on the purpose of God throughout this book. So when he says it's by the will of God, it's not mere religious talk. It's not just some kind of spiritual uh, verbiage that he's using. This defines his theology. This defines his life. I wake up in the morning in chains and live my life called, sent, uh, given a purpose by the will of God. You see, Paul had been a persecutor of the church. He had actually been an accessory to murder of Christians. But one, one day, God reveals himself to him as he's on the road to Damascus, and with a blinding light, shows himself to Paul, says to him, Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Saul at the time. Why are you persecuting me? And he, 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 Paul has faith, is, he receives faith in Jesus through a vision. And uh, he ultimately becomes the one who is sent to the Gentiles. But now, because he is preaching the gospel, he's no longer the persecutor, he is the persecuted And as a persecuted person, uh, he is in chains. But what is so powerful is that the calling of God is still foremost in his mind. That's where he starts. He can't think of himself except but one who lives by the will of God, sent by the will of God, believer by the will of God, child by the will of God. And so while none of us are apostles and none of us are writing the New Testament, We, too, are those who exist and who live and who are given purpose by the will of God. We are called to, this book is going to show us, we are called by the will of God to participate in the purposes of God, no less than Paul. Now, he had a different role than us, but he doesn't have a more significant role. Everybody has the role God has given them. He played a strategic role at a point in history, no doubt. No one is writing Scripture today inspired by the Spirit. Nobody's writing Scripture. 
And yet, we too must define our lives as those who are sent, in some sense, by the will of God, compelled by the purpose of God. And from the very beginning, this is Paul's self-designation, and he models that for us, that his calling is not limited by his circumstances, but his calling is defined by the will of God, and so is yours, and so is mine. The recipients he writes to, look at verse 1b, he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. The saints, if you're taking notes in your journal there, you might want to note saints means holy ones. The term means literally holy ones. And he's not saying that the Ephesians are extraordinarily godly in comparison to everyone else. The word holy means set apart. Set apart. He's saying, I'm writing to those of you in Ephesus who are set apart. Now, Ephesus was a prominent city in Paul's day. Um, It it was uh, one that he had been to on a couple of occasions. Uh, One time he was there for a very short time. Uh, But a second time, he was there for three years. He spent more time in uh, Ephesus than most any other place. He started out preaching the gospel to people in the synagogue. They got fed up with him and tossed him out. And so he went over to a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. And there he lectured daily. Uh, In the culture, you had an afternoon siesta. And so during the siesta time, he would teach each day. People would come and hear him in the afternoons proclaim the gospel. And this was an influential city. It was in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, sort of the western part of Asia Minor, and it was the capital of Asia Minor. And this city, Ephesus, these called-out people in Ephesus, uh, they lived in a city that was known for a number of things, but two primarily. First of all, this city was a commercial port, and that's important to know because it was a burgeoning center of commerce that people through the port came to do business, to uh, sell their wares, to import and export. And because of that, it drew people from all over. So it was a multicultural city. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a strategic city. And this is important to know because that makeup of a lot of different people with a lot of different viewpoints and a lot of different backgrounds in this same city, that plays a part in the letter because the letter tells us that people who are very different, who believe in Jesus, are in Christ and are joined together as a new humanity, a new society defined by the work of Christ. So it's significant that he wasn't in a, in a culture that was homogeneous where everybody was just the same, but it was a multicultural people, which is significant to the message of the story. Secondly, it was known as the headquarters of the cult of the goddess Diana. She was the Roman goddess Diana and the Greek goddess Artemis. Uh, I did a little research on her. Man, when it came to the gods and the goddesses, This lady had games. She was God over a lot of stuff, random stuff, too. Like, she was the God over intersections, which I don't know. Some of the way people run traffic lights, we we need the God of heaven guarding us when we come to the intersection. But, like, where there's a Y in the road or a pathway, she was like the goddess over that. Uh, She was the goddess over childbirth. Uh, She was the goddess over hunters. And so Diana was frequently... uh, If you see an image of her, she's frequently got a bow and arrow, Um, and so she was a goddess uh, over uh, over, uh, agriculture, so a lot of different things. But what was significant was her temple. Her temple was located in Ephesus, 
and it was massive. It was so massive that it was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. If you want to know what were the seven great places in all the planet, the temple of Diana was one of them, and it was in Ephesus. Why is that important? Because the people of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, was birthed out of a deeply pagan environment, and we're going to see that come up throughout the letter. So not only was the church birthed in a multicultural, diverse community, that's important, it was also birthed in an environment deeply steeped in pagan tradition and pagan uh, powers and spirits, magic and spirits were alive there as well, which we're going to see. Paul addresses that as much in this book as any other book, but maybe Colossians. So he calls these people in Ephesus saints, those who are set apart uh, by God's grace. And he set them apart in this uh, pagan culture to be his people. It's an astounding statement, really. The term holy people, holy ones in the Old Testament, is never used to refer to Gentiles and is rarely even used to uh, refer to the general uh, people uh, in, uh, in Judaism as well. But for the Jews of the day, it would be unthinkable, unthinkable that someone would be calling Gentiles holy. And Paul wants to say in this letter, that's the mystery of the gospel. The big mystery which was hidden from all the prophets in the past but has now been revealed is this, that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your race. It doesn't matter your gender, your socioeconomic status, and any other kind of dividing uh, criteria that we want to introduce Anyone who is in Christ, anyone who believes is in Christ and is joined in his people among the new humanity, the new society that is to declare the work and demonstrate the work of the gospel through their unity, through their, as we'll see in a moment, through the grace and peace we receive through the gospel. Next, the greeting. Grace, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that language is not unusual. If you received a letter uh, at this time, probably the book was written around 60 to 62 AD. Um, If you received a letter at that time in this place, it might start with grace or peace. Uh, We sometimes close a letter that way. You know, peace, peace out, grace to you, whatever it is. We might close one that way, but this was a standard greeting. Grace and peace. But Paul's not just using a standard greeting because that's what everybody did. Paul uses words intentionally. They're inspired by the Spirit. Grace and peace are two huge themes in the letter. We could say grace is perhaps the primary theme of the letter. Um, grace means God's favor to us. Not just God's favor to people, but God's favor who deserve, to those who deserve his judgment. It's God's favor to his enemies. It's God's favor to those who are dead in transgressions and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It's, it's, uh, it's God's grace to those who, who are living according to the, the, the model of this world, Ephesians 2 says, according to the prince of the power of the air. There goes those spirits living under the power of dominating dark forces and spirits, those who don't know Jesus. It's, it's, it's grace to those people. God's favor on those people. And when we receive the favor of God, we then 
have what? Peace with God. Here's the commentary. Why, why does Jesus die, buried, and raised? So that we would be joined to him by faith, made new people by God's grace, and we would have peace with God and peace with one another. Grace produces peace, and the, the Ephesian church is told to, by God's grace, hold on to that peace. The letter is going to say, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We'll see these words throughout the letter. So that's the author, that's the recipients, that is the greeting. Grace through peace. And we need that in our world today. I mean, this was a divided culture, Ephesus was. And we live in a divided culture. And what this culture needs from the church of Jesus Christ in this country. I can't speak about other nations and what's going on in them, but what this country needs from this, this church, from the church of Jesus in this country, is a display of the unity birthed by the gospel. A divided world needs a united church, needs to see where can people, where can people walk in love and service and life together despite their differences, unified not by politics, unified not by common circumstances of background, unified not by race, unified not by socioeconomic status, but unified in Jesus. It points to the great mystery of the gospel that God is unifying a people for himself for all eternity. Well, what do we hope to get out of this book? You may have some of your own hopes uh, I'm going to tell you uh, what I believe is in the book that I think God wants to do in us in the coming months. And you might jot these down because these are prayer points for us as a church. We need a fresh vision, friends. And I think we first of all need a fresh vision of the gospel. The book of Ephesians is relentless in its declaration that the gospel is about what God has done for us, not what we do for God. And that truth, that the gospel is what God has done for us, not what we do for God, is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. That we are not a religion that teaches we must clean up our act so that somehow we reach a status so that God accepts us. No, this book tells us that you were actually dead in your trespasses and sin. You were alive to spiritual darkness, this book teaches, but you were dead to Christ, and he raised you. He did it for you. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It is all what he's done. And this emphasis on what God has done, this, this theme that the gospel is about what God has done, not what we do for him, it's baked into the structure of the book. The first three chapters are all about what God has done. I didn't review this before making this comment in the first service, so I may have to go back and change this next week. But as far as I remember, there's maybe one command. There's either one or zero commands in the entire first three chapters. The first three chapters don't tell you anything to do. It tells us what God has done, what God's purpose is, what God is announcing to the world through his people in Christ, what God has accomplished through the resurrected Savior, what God is building for the world to see, even the spiritual powers to look on and be amazed by the wisdom of God in Christ. Nothing for you to do. It's all about the grace of God. 
The second four chapters give us plenty to do. It's about, based on the grace of God, how does that flesh it out? How does that flesh out in our lives? How does it lead us to relate to one another? How does it lead us to use our gifts? How does it change our character? How does it make us a people that are pure? How does it affect our relationships, our marriage, our parenting? How does it affect how we work and what God's accomplishing through our work? How does it affect how we pray? How does it affect how we interact with dark forces? That's the end of the book. So, so how do, how do, what is the Christian life to look like for us together? So this book is going to help all of us. Listen, if you're a legalist, that means that your tendency, and most of us have some legalism in us. I mean, like, if you're primarily, you say, like, I'm a rule follower. Okay. If that's you, then you probably have this tendency to, I got to do something for God to accept me. I'm not doing enough. I'm failing. I think God's mad at me. I think God's distant. I don't think. So if that's you, these first three chapters, it's going to be great. You're going to have a twitch. You're going to have a nervous twitch on Sundays because I'm not going to be able to say that the text tells you to do this. I'll make applications, but oftentimes the applications are going to go, believe the gospel. Trust what God has done for you. Lay down your self-effort and self-righteousness and trust him. That's great. So for some of you, the first three chapters are going to retool you, and you're going to get a burden lifted off of you, and there's going to be a rest that comes in your soul where God is so much bigger to you, and you are so much smaller which you don't realize when you're thinking you got to do something to be right with God, please him. Now, the next chapter, the next three uh, chapters, chapters four through six, if you're the kind of person that says, it's all of grace, it's great, I don't have to do anything, oh, we want to talk to you on those Sundays because God's got a ton of stuff for you to do, and he wants you to repent like crazy based on what he has done. So if you're the person that says, I don't have to do anything, I'm just cruising along in Jesus, oh, he's, he's going to restructure your life by grace, and it's going to be wonderful. So if you're a legalist or if you're into license, this book is going to retool you so that you will have the, the basics of understanding the work of God, how it works out in us and through us individually and as people together for his glory. The book of Ephesians expands our vision of the gospel is what I'm trying to say. For in it we find the gospel is not only about my private spiritual experience, it's about God acting through the cross, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus to chapter 1 verse 10, unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The purpose of the gospel, you see, is not just to change me, though it is, to change the church, though it is, it's to change the world, it's to change the universe, ultimately, to bring all things under his glorious rule. And we need a vision of that all-encompassing work of the gospel, which changes everything. We don't need a new gospel We don't need a bigger gospel. We just need to believe this gospel that's written in our Bible today and allow it to affect us and change us. So the book of Ephesians, we're not coming up, we're not pulling a rabbit out of the hat with some new uh, fangled thing for everybody. We're just saying, no, let's get back to what the Bible teaches us about the gospel with a fresh vision and see how it changes our lives. Ephesians will widen the screen of our vision 
Some of us are viewing the gospel like watching a video on our phone. You ever do that? I do that some. You just watch a video. I've watched entire movies on my phone. It's like, oh, wow. Some of us have that vision of the gospel, and it's in black and white. Others of us, well, we're watching on a tablet. We got a little bigger vision of the gospel. Some of us got a 55-inch screen in our home, a 70-inch screen. But God's wanting to take us to the IMAX theater where we are enveloped by the gospel, where we go from right here to something that is so captivating, the seat's rumbling under us. And we think the shark really is about to jump out and bite our head off. We want that kind. We need a fresh vision of the gospel. We don't need a new one. We just need to appreciate what's there. And the Holy Spirit has to work that in us. Secondly, we need a fresh vision of our identity. The book of Ephesians is wonderful because it tells us that we have a new identity. You don't just have a new religion or a new relationship, though you do have that, a new relationship with God. But you actually have a new identity. And and one of the primary, we have a number of new identities, but a primary new identity in the book of Ephesians is you are now in union with Christ. You're now unified with him. So it says that in a couple ways. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So it's like we have new life with Christ because we're joined with him. But the way it usually speaks of union with Christ, our new identity, is to say that we are in Christ Jesus. So look at verse 1 we read this morning. To the saints who are in Jesus and are faithful, in Christ Jesus. So we are in Christ the word Christ is the translate, would be the, kind of the translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's a title. The Latin word would be Caesar. The English word would be king. It's a, it's a, it's a title of a ruler. Christ means Messiah, Caesar, king, this sort of thing. And we are united in him, king Jesus. We are united with him. And so what he's saying here is that, uh, that we live in two places, sort of. And this totally shifts our outlook. He says in verse 1 that you live in Ephesus. To those who are in Ephesus, but you also live in Christ. And this book is going to show us how do we live in both places, because we're part of sort of two kingdoms. We're part of this world. Not of it, but we're in it. And we're part of the heavenly kingdom. We're part of Uh, in Christ. So John Stott says our problem is that we forget to be in two kingdoms. He writes, we tend either to pursue Christ and withdraw from the world or to become preoccupied with the world and forget that we are in Christ. So we tend to be all about in Ephesus. I'm in Frisco. My life is absorbed by just my daily activity and I forget I'm in Christ. Other people are so in Christ and so spiritual that we withdraw from relationships. We, we segment our lives into the spiritual moments like right now. And we don't realize we're in Christ when we're in Ephesus. We're just in Christ at church and in our devotional and uh, that sort of stuff. And that's the problem, is that we're either so worldly that we're not thinking about Jesus or we're so spiritual that we're not connecting to Christ all of life, and both of those are damaging. We need both. We need to know, I'm in Christ in Little Elm. 
I'm in Christ and prosper wherever you live. Now, Sam Storms has this quote about this passage, which I think is very helpful, where he does a little bit of a play on words, but I hope you get, I hope this uh, emphasizes the point being made, living in Christ, your new identity. He writes, no matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be down in the dumps, over the hill, or beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be at paradise, or in prison, at the movies, or in Belton, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. Your geographical, earthly, physical location has no effect on your spiritual identity, but the reverse is different. It is precisely because you are in Christ that wherever you live and work and play, you make an impact. You carry an influence. You make a difference. Your spiritual identity as one in Christ must control and characterize how you live, wherever you live. And remember, it is in Kansas City that you are in Christ. They are true simultaneously. You do not live in Christ only while you are at church or in class or in home group and then return to being simply in Kansas City when you leave that more holy atmosphere. This balance will take a lifetime for us to understand by grace. In Ephesus, in Frisco, but in Christ. So that all of our life is connected so that we are consciously, intentionally connected to Christ, walking out our faith by his grace, by his spirit, wherever we are. That's the key to the idea that all of life matters, because all of life, we're in Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. No circumstance, no failure, no location, no situation, no relationship. He is our life, and no one may separate us. And so all of life is worship to God. That was the power of Michaela's story this morning, story of grace. The power was that he's in management, um, in a manufacturing production facility, but that he's in Christ. And so the way he functions there is different. It's not just about numbers. Production matters, but it's not just about numbers. It's about people. And as he said eloquently in the video, as Christ served him, giving his life. So he's privileged in Christ to serve others. In the plant, but in Christ at the same time. And the the amazing thing is that he does this for us all together. He's placing us in Christ together. So this book is going to teach us that we not only have a new identity individually, but as a people, we have an identity together. So he is He is making us in Christ to look more and more like him together. You can't do it alone. We do it together. And so that we begin to look more and more like our head. Paul says in this book that Jesus is the head and we are the body. We'll see that in chapter 2. Have you ever taken a picture in one of those cutouts where they have the hole and you stick your head in and then there's something funny below you? And the humor of it is the disparity between your face and what's below you. So maybe you stick your head in and there's like this massive 
muscle guy below you. So for me, there's no disparity in that one. It's not funny. But um, so, or, or maybe you, you're a couple and you both stick your face through and it's Mickey and Minnie Mouse holding hands. And what's cute and funny about it is you're not Mickey and Minnie, but you, you know, the disparity between the two. That's what's funny. So when I do stick my head through the muscle man, it is funny because it doesn't look anything like what I look like. On vacation or for your family pictures, that's funny. But in the church, that's tragic. Jesus is the head. And his head is glorious and beautiful and gracious and holy. That's who he is, the head. And when his body is chaotic and judgmental and divisive and self-righteous, it's not funny, it's, it's tragic, it's ugly. And so what Paul is saying here is God's purpose, Jesus died, was uh, buried, rose, and exalted. God's purpose in that play-by-play act, the color commentary on that, is what God is doing is he is now taking the grace of that gospel and making us look just like our head. So that there's congruity between the head and the body. That's our identity, we're his body. And that leads to the third one, a fresh vision of the church, a fresh vision of the gospel, a fresh vision of our identity in Christ, a fresh vision of the church. John Stott says this, we got the quote for you. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create, through Jesus Christ, a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. That's what we're going to learn. We're called to a new society that stands out in a dying, decrepit, old world. We're living in a day when the church is increasingly irrelevant in our culture. Jesus is good, for sure. Spirituality, that, that's good and welcomed, but our culture believes that the institutional church is irrelevant at best and dangerous at worst. Those dangerous people with their hate speech and their divisiveness, and you know, they're, they're, they're shutting down our freedoms of expression and all that kind of stuff. But God's view is very different. God's view is very different, and it's no clearer than in the book of Ephesians. The church is not just a collection of individuals It is a unified body, a temple, chapter 2 says, where where we are becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's beautiful. That's amazing. The, the, The house of the spirit of God is the people of God. That's the biblical picture. And in all of this, the church is the wisdom of the gospel that is on display for a watching world. Who would have thought Jew and Gentile could be together? Groups previously hostile, united in peace with God and with one another. And and Ephesians says this amazing thing, which is hard to get your head around. It says that the church is not just the demonstration of God's wisdom to a watching world, but to the spiritual powers. It says this at a couple of places, that there are spiritual principalities and powers and that the church is announcing to them the gospel. You see, the world is animated by spiritual powers. Nations, every nation, nations are animated by evil powers and authority, spiritual authority, systems 
have spiritual authorities. Institutions are animated by dark forces, real things that go bump in the night, entities of spiritual fallen evil forces. And the, the book of Ephesians says, you know what? When Jesus came up out of that grave, all of those forces were defeated. And God is announcing to the forces of darkness the power of his defeat through the witness of the church. Unified people, Jew and Gentile, together by his grace. So we're not just some little gathering here Uh, in Frisco Square, talking about our parochial private religious ideas. We are a part of God's work of the cosmic renewal of all things, and the forces of darkness are more aware of that than many of us are. The book of Ephesians, we're going to understand the gospel so that we see that it's bigger than me, it's bigger than us, it's bigger than the church in America. It's the people of God, which is God's showpiece of his redemptive work in Christ for all creation and all time. It doesn't get bigger. You can't come up with a bigger dream for your life. Than that, the cosmic renewal of all things. I mean, what, what is that even? That's just beyond, that's a mind blowing statement. But that's what's happening here today. That's what's happening. It's not a gathering of polite people listening to some guy rant. It might be that, but it's more than that. So I said there's not a lot of takeaways. What is the takeaway? Uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus, okay, to those people, you know, 2,000 years ago, grace to them. What's the takeaway? I said the first three chapters, the takeaway points will be a little bit different. But I do have a very clear application for you today. Immerse yourself in the book of Ephesians. Now, when we did the book of Judges, I had numbers of people say to me, I've never heard the book of Judges taught. And I thought, neither have I. But I've heard the book of Ephesians, every church, every church plant has taught the book of Ephesians, guaranteed. We taught it 16 years ago. I dusted off some of those notes from 16 years ago and looked at them and said, man, this is grace that anybody came back after they heard that sermon. That was sorry. And this is, God is doing something amazing, you know, just that anybody came back. So I think the, hopefully these sermons will be a little better than they were, than what I taught 16 years ago. I'm restudying the book, reapplying it, starting from scratch. But Every church has taught Ephesians. So the challenge is, when we read through this, for by grace we've been saved through faith, that's at the front door in stone, etched in stone when you walk in. Yeah, we know that. So, so the goal is, how do I get gripped by God from something I am familiar with? Um, I think we just have to take a deeper dive. And we have to pray the Holy Spirit would give us a fresh vision. So I'm going to encourage you to use this and mark it up. Or use whatever device. Maybe you've got another journal. But let's get into the book of Ephesians. You can read ahead minimally. Next week, we'll look at verses 3 to 14. But you could do more than that. You could read a chapter a day. If you read a chapter a day, that's six days. Take Sunday off, come and hear a sermon on it, and then go back the next day. If you read the book of Ephesians every week for the next number of months, Uh, and sought to apply it, wrote down how you're praying from it, how God's speaking to you, what action you are taking, what new insights God's revealed to you, it would radically change your life, and it would radically change our church. So use the journal, read the book, listen to it daily. 
I've recently been listening to it in different translations. That's very helpful. I listen to NIV, I listen to the ESV, I listen to the NLT, uh, I listen to the message version of it, which is super loose, just to paraphrase. I listen to, um, I, I, I can't remember what all, the ES, I can't remember, but just listen to them. I listen to one that just kind of has lo-fi, kind of has lo-fi beats, and on the bed of the beats is the spoken word. I listen to that. So however you want to listen to it, listen, read, memorize, um, take notes, act on what you learn, and you will learn more than you ever knew. We're not going to seek to master the book of Ephesians, but we are going to seek to be mastered by it, and that will require uh, multiple exposures, regular exposures, unrushed, unhurried exposures to this book. May God change each of us as we get his vision of his purposes as we find out what he did and is doing and will do through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.